51, verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks Anna. Well, we are uh, officially in the season of Lent. Maybe you've heard uh, of that before or are celebrating it, observing it yourself. Um, we've been doing that uh, as a church here at Redeemer for as, as long as I think we've been a church. And we just finished um, coming out of the season of Epiphany. And if that's strange to you, uh, the Epiphany is, is this season where we, as a church, focus on the mission of God. And now we're pivoting. We're in this kind of different season as we prepare for Easter, the season of Lent. And uh, you could simplify it to understand it to say that, it, you know, if Epiphany is about revealing God to us, then the season of Lent is about revealing us to us. It's a season where the church has traditionally prepared for Easter by uh, focusing on repentance. And I know that's kind of a churchy word. What does that even mean, repentance? Um, it's the season where we ask ourselves some brutally honest questions and try to assess what is it in my life that is obscuring the love of Jesus? Where am I out of step with the Spirit, as it were? Um, I, I read somewhere that you could compare Lent to the spiritual equivalent of an annual physical exam. And you think, that does not sound fun. That, that sounds like I, I'm going to just take a little vacation from uh, Redeemer for the next few weeks. If they're going to do what feels like a physical exam every single week, then let's not do that. Um, so my goal this morning is to try to argue you out of that, to really try to show you that repentance is hard and it is painful, and yet it's also a gift. So I, I want to um, look at three big ideas with you briefly this morning what repentance is, why you need it, and then how you can do it. What it is, why you and I need it, and then how we can do it. So first, what is it? Because like I said, repentance is it's a weird churchy kind of word. If you're, if you're not that religious or if you, you know, you're not considering yourself a Christian, it just feels like this word makes no sense to me. Simply put, re repentance is turning from your sin to God. That's, that's, what it is. And that's kind of what this whole psalm is about. Psalm 51 is written by this Israelite king named David. And uh, you can see in the, in the little postscript at the top before verse 1 that there's a context for why he wrote this psalm. It's a longer psalm. We're only looking at the first verse. But the story is, if you're familiar with it, David was a king and uh, he uh, forced himself on another woman, a woman named Bathsheba, who was married to another man who was at war. And uh, David didn't intend this, but he got Bathsheba pregnant. She became pregnant, and he tried to cover it up. He did this whole sophisticated plot to make sure that uh, nobody f found this out, and it didn't work. So he, he had no other choices if he was going to try to hide what, this, what he had done, and so he ended up having his, uh, her husband murdered in battle so that he can marry her, and it looks all legit. It looks like, oh, nothing wrong was done here. And, and that's what happens. The husband dies, he marries Bathsheba, and it seems like he's totally gotten away with it. Nobody is, is none the wiser. But his friend and his advisor, this guy named uh, Nathan, 
knew about it, and Nathan confronts David about this horrible thing that he has done. And that was the moment for David when he, he felt totally exposed. He finally saw who he really is, what he has done, the pain and the devastation that he has caused to all these other people and to his own life. And so he repents. He writes this psalm, this poem, as his way of turning to God with his very sin. You, you, you can even see this. Look at how the, the psalm starts. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And I, I didn't include it in your bulletin, but here's what verse 2 says. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And here's what I want you to see is that he's not afraid to name it. In fact, he uses the word sin. He uses the S word, which is a word that in our modern context, we don't like that word. It's, it feels archaic. It feels offensive. And yet, David, what I want you to notice, he doesn't minimize what he has done. He doesn't justify it or explain it away. He doesn't psychologize it. He says, I have sinned. I have done wrong. This is 100% my fault. He owns it. He names it. Now, that alone isn't repentance because that alone could just lead you towards feeling horrible about yourself, just self-pity, self-loathing. Oh, my goodness, I'm the worst. But he doesn't do that. He's honest, but notice what he does. He brings that honesty to God. He brings it to God for mercy. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. As he says in verse 2, wash me thoroughly. Now, if you're anything like me, when you feel dirty in your soul where it feels like you need to be washed, if you feel guilty, you have that sense of exposure where you're like, ugh, I've done it again. I feel horrible. If you're anything like me, running to God is not usually the first act, your first movement in your own soul. Because... I tend to not run to God. I tend to run to my own willpower. And what I mean by that is I start thinking up resolutions. I start setting goals for myself. It's like, oh, oh my goodness, I feel horrible. I've done this thing. I'm going to start waking up in the morning early, and I'm going to start praying every morning. Or I, I'm going to go to counseling. Or I'm going to buy a new journal, and I'm going to start writing in it. And all of those are great ideas. Those are great things. In fact, I would suggest you do all of those things. They're all great. But those things in and of themselves is not repentance. Because repentance in and of itself is turning not to resolutions, not to goals, not towards being more productive, but turning to the face of God. Being honest about who you are and what you have done and, and pleading for mercy. That's repentance. Now, if you're not religious or you don't identify as a Christian, you might hear that and think, okay, that, that's cool for y'all, but I have zero interest in that. That sounds really uh, irrelevant to my life. Why in the world would I need to do that? That sounds painful. That sounds hard. That sounds... Uh, Amazon and Netflix and PlayStation sounds way more interesting than that. So why do we need this? Well, let's look at that secondly. Why, why, do we, why does everyone in this room need repentance? 
I try to answer it this way by asking you a, a, a rhetorical question. You don't have to, in fact, don't answer out loud. But um, here's the question. Do you know what the deadliest animal on earth is? The deadliest animal on earth. Some of y'all are whispering. It's not snakes. Snakes is number two. I looked at a bunch of different websites this week. It's not snakes. Uh, it's not lions or tigers or bears. Oh, my. It is not, it's not sharks. It's not hippos. It's not crocodiles. It's not the duck, which maybe some of you have, were, were wondering. It's not a mallard. It is the... Mosquito. <laughs> Someone, yes, I nailed it. You did good. If you guessed mosquito, you did good. The, the, the animal that holds the number one spot for being responsible for seven, over 750,000 deaths per year, the mosquito. The mosquito. And, and we, you know, in Memphis, mosquitoes, we, we know mosquitoes well, not just because we hate them currently, but this is a big part of our city's history. We, we know the kind of devastation a little... You know, this, this motion, that little thing can cause, you know, wide, you know, sweeping pain and devastation and death. Here's the point, is that sometimes the smallest things can be the things that are actually the, the deadliest, the things that are hiding in plain sight. I mean, think about the past two years or so that we've had just what has rocked our World. It hasn't been some big massive atomic bomb dropping. It has been an invisible virus. Can't even see it. That here is something that is so small, so invisible, and yet it can create so much devastation. Here, here's the point, is that sin functions the same way. Sin is this thing in us which is so, it's so imperceptible, it's so small it's these, it's these impulses in us which feel so normal. They're just hiding in plain sight, and yet that, those are the things that are responsible for wreaking in just all, all the devastation. The pain in your life, the pain in my life, it's these small, imperceptible things. Now, here's the, here's the reality. David didn't wake up that morning and think to himself, I'm going to sexually assault someone and then murder her husband, and then destroy my own family. No one wakes up and thinks those things. He woke up and started making one little small bad decision after the other. Gave in just a little bit here, a little bit of concession there, and then he woke up at the end of the day and his, his life was, you know, exploded. Same way with you and I. We don't wake up and think, let's ruin my life today. We wake up and we, have, we make all these small little decisions and slowly but surely we start going down a path where we hurt people or we hurt ourselves, we bring damage into the world, we dishonor the name of God. Think about, um, this is a little bit of an outdated reference, but I don't think anything illustrates this more than the show Breaking Bad. Remember this show? This is not a show I should be referencing from a pulpit, but um, here we go. Um, the show centers on this character named Walter White, and Walter White is a high school chemistry teacher uh, he, has a, he has an older son who's physically disabled, and he just gets diagnosed with lung cancer. And so he's dying. And so he, he's, his back is totally up against the wall for how he's going to provide for his family, especially if he were to die as a result of this diagnosis. And so he loves his family. He's a good guy, cares about his family. But he starts making one little bad decision after the other. He starts researching how he can cook meth and then he uses his chemistry skills to start cooking meth. 
And then he hires somebody to help him sell the meth. And he's making money, and he starts lying about it to cover it up, and he starts making one little bad decision after the other after the other. And so you get to the end of five seasons, and by the end of the whole series, what started off as this, like, nice, kind, family-oriented person has become a monster. He's like this drug kingpin. He's murdered tons of people. He's killed police officers. He's poisoned children. He's, uh, he's, his whole family is, is destroyed. What you see is this slow, gradual unraveling of this thing in him. And now you, you, you might hear that. You think, wow, that feels extreme, Matt. I, I realize that I'm no saint here, but I don't plan on selling meth and murdering a bunch of people. And that's good. I hope that that's the course of your life. So how is this relevant for us? Because, you know, we're, most of us don't make these big, huge, splashy mistakes, but we also do kind of have these gradual little ways that we hurt people that are close to us. So, so what does this look like for us? Well, I want you to notice in this psalm, if you, were to, if you were to read the whole psalm, it's fascinating to notice that David uses different words to describe this thing that he has done. He says in verse 2, again, it's not in your bulletin, but he says in verse 2 that um, he refers to it as iniquity. He calls it sin, like I said. In verse 4, he calls it evil. But notice in verse 1, which I included, he uses the word transgressions. That word is made up of two smaller words, trans, which means across, and gressions, which is from the Latin word for go. So transgression literally means just to go across. It means to step over and to go beyond your limits, to step over your boundaries. Think about the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were told, hey, you can have anything, you can eat any tree that you want, but you're going to have boundaries. You're going to have some limits. You can eat, enjoy all the fruits of the garden, whatever you want, except for that one tree. And Adam and Eve did not like feeling constrained by those sorts of limitations. And so they transgressed. They stepped over their boundaries. They stepped over their limitations and did whatever they wanted to do. And that impulse is the same impulse inside of you and me. It's an impulse towards autonomy. It's this impulse in us that says nobody has the right, not even God, to tell me what to do. I get to decide what is true for me. I get to decide how I live my life, and nobody has the right to tell me what to do or how to live. It's, it's all on me. That is the impulse that is so subtle. It's so small. It's, it's, it's even invisible. It's hiding in plain sight, and I'm going to try to show you for the next few weeks that that is the impulse that is the most lethal. That's the impulse that destroys families, that destroys marriages, that destroys relationships, that destroys cities and societies. It is this impulse in us that says, I am autonomous. I do not belong to God. I do not belong to anybody else. I am an island, and I can do whatever I want. So what we're going to do for the next few weeks as a church is we're going to look at that impulse that's inside of all of us this impulse towards autonomy. And we're going to look at it from a bunch of different angles, and we are going to encourage each other to repent of it, to root this thing out in us that is poisonous, that is lethal, that is toxic. That's why we need it. That's why we need repentance, because we will die if we don't. It's kind of like somebody who has a cancerous tumor and looking at the surgeon and saying, okay, why do I need surgery? Why do I need to get this thing out of me? 
because you, you won't survive unless you do. In small ways and big ways, unless we root out this toxin in us, we're going to die a bunch of small or big deaths. So that's why we need it. That's what repentance is. It is turning from our sin to God. It's not giving up chocolate, per se. It's giving up sin. And we turn from sin to God. Here's why we need it, because we're, we're going to die unless we do. So here's the last question. Why should we do this? How are we going to do this? Because that sounds really hard. What's going to motivate us to want to do that? Because that is hard. That requires a lot of honesty. That requires brutal self-assessment of ourselves. That requires us to be humble, to admit things about ourselves we don't feel comfortable admitting. What's going to motivate us to want to do this? Well, here's the last thing. How do we do this? Well, Look, look at David again. He's, he's being honest. He's coming clean. He's asking for mercy. But did you notice he's appealing to something? He's asking for mercy on the basis of something else. You want to know what it is? Look at it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to what? Your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And I think this is, a real, this is really important to notice. David doesn't say, God, have mercy on me according to the fact that I'm generally a pretty good person. I, I try to do the right thing, and I just kind of screw it up here. So, you know, throw me a bone. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, God, have mercy on me according to this promise that I'm going to make you, that I'm never going to do that again. And I promise I'm going to try really hard in the future. I promise I'm going to start going to church. I'm really going to pull my life together. He doesn't do that. He doesn't appeal for mercy on the basis of anything in him. He appeals for mercy on the basis of something in God, namely that God has steadfast love and abundant mercy. That's how he can ask. That's why he can be brutally honest because he, is a, he has a deep confidence in the love and the mercy of God. A couple weeks ago, I was at a conference in New Orleans, and there was a speaker that spoke. The sp- <laughs> there was a speaker that spoke, and she spoke, which while she was speaking about this, um, uh, she told this story. Her name was Abby Hutto. She's on staff at a Presbyterian church in Ohio. She's she's authored uh, at least one book, and um, she told this story about her third grade son which I I was uh, really moved by when she told it. She said she dropped her son off at school that day, and she goes home, and she was working or running some errands or kind of doing whatever, had the day to herself. She gets a call about halfway through the day from the principal of this school, and the principal says, "Uh, Abby, your son has done something really terrible at school today. He's gotten in big-time trouble, and uh, so I'm, I'm calling you to let you know that we've written up a report. We've put it in his folder that he's going to send home. You need to read over it with him tonight, sign it, and bring it back to school tomorrow. She hangs up the phone, and she has that feeling that a lot of parents have when your parents, when your kids have done something wrong, where you're like, I'm going to destroy them. I am going to hurt this child. You know, it's like, it was this, it was this sense of like, I didn't raise this child to act like this. I didn't, I didn't, you know, they're, they're, this is a public embarrassment to not just them, but to me and blah, blah, blah. And so she calls her husband, calls her husband and says, um, you know, what are we going to do 
to this child? What are we going to do to our son? What can we legally get away with in terms of punishing our child? And I don't know. They they talk about it, whatever. And so day goes on. Eventually, 3 o'clock rolls around. And she says she's in the living room, and the, the, she was looking out the window on the street, and the bus pulls up on the street, and, you know, out from the bus comes her son holding this, you know, big, clunky, giant backpack, and he's, you know, walking towards the front door with his head down like Charlie Brown, uh, just, just, you know, feeling the weight of what he's about to walk into, and he walks through the front door. And she says that what happened next was almost this, uh, almost supernatural where God kind of stepped in and pushed her to the side and spoke through her to her own son. And so she kneels down and gets eye to eye with him. And she says, buddy, before we look at anything in your backpack, I want you to know that I am proud to be your mother. And there is nothing in that backpack that's going to change that. In fact, We need to look at what's in the backpack here in a second, and we're going to look at it together, but you just need to know that there is nothing in there that is going to threaten or change my love for you. And, you know, Abby is telling this story at this conference, and I'm just sobbing, and everyone around me is just weeping as we've heard the story because because what she got to demonstrate for us in that story is this expression of steadfast love a love that all of us long for, a love that is, even just in her telling the story of her relating to her little third grade son was moving to me, was moving to all these people in this conference because we we wanted that. Because we knew if you have that, if if you know that you are loved like that, doesn't that free you to take out whatever's in the backpack? Don't you know that, okay, this is, this is going to be embarrassing, this is going to feel shameful, this is going to be hard, but this is, I, I'm safe. I'm finally free to actually be known right now for who I really am, warts and all, mistakes and all, flaws and sin included. The reason why David can take the stuff out of his backpack and be brutally honest and bring it before God is because he has a deep confidence in God's steadfast love for him and God's abundant mercy for him. The only way that you'll be able to be brutally honest about the areas of your life that need to be exposed, the only way that you'll be able to really repent is if you know that you are loved like that. How can you know that you're loved like that? We have a God that was willing to be blotted out for us. We have a God that was willing to come in the person of his son, Jesus, and to be extinguished on the cross in our place. He was willing to drink the lethal poison that is toxic inside of us, and he was willing to be shriveled and withered and and obliterated into a million pieces so that we might be healed, we might be cleansed, we might be saved. It's his demonstration of his love and it's his kindness. That's what gives us the confidence. That's what liberates us. That's what frees us to be brutally honest without any fear of wrath, condemnation, judgment. We're finally free. Do you hear the Father saying to you, I am proud to be your Father, and I've shown it to you at the cross, and there is nothing that you can throw at me, there's nothing that you can show me, there's nothing that you can confess to me that you have done or are doing or will do that will change that. If you start to tap into that voice, 
that will free you to repent. In fact, here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He says, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's when you see his kindness, his tenderness, his love for people that have really screwed up, that's what frees you to repent. It takes you by the hand and it leads you to repentance, which is another way of saying it just leads you right back into the arms of the Father. So I want to invite you really not just for the season of Lent, but really just your entire life to begin fighting the instinct in you and for me to fight the instinct in me to minimize that which is messed up about us, to defend it, to excuse it, but to feel the real freedom to name it, to come clean about it, and to bring it before God because we have a God who has steadfast love and abundant mercy for people like us. Consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Oh, Father, would you have mercy on us according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercies, would you blot out our transgressions? Give us eyes to see that which is harmful in us, that which is poisonous in us. And Father, help us to fight the instincts to want to deny it, to excuse it, to blame other people for it. Father, give us the freedom to own it, to name it, and to bring it before you, knowing that you do not cast out those who, are, those who have broken spirits before you. Renew in us a clean heart. Help us to die to sin that we might walk in newness of life only because of the steadfast love and abundant mercy of King Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.